We're going to be um, going to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. Um, you know, if you remember back a few years in, in 2012, uh, an organization called Marvel released a movie called The Avengers. It, it was this highly anticipated movie that built on years of solo projects and backstories and of these different superheroes and, and they have these particular skills and abilities um, but now they're being brought together but they've been encountering some challenges and it hasn't been easy and they're really not acting like a team anymore. They're distrusting each other and the possibility of great effectiveness has been reduced to infighting and distraction and rivalry and at one point there's a character named Nick Fury and he says to the Avengers when things are looking pretty bleak he says the idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could become something more to see if they could work together when we needed them to to fight the battles that we never could and when we look at the church and the body of Christ, we see this parallel that God's brought together a disparate band of people with unique skills and abilities, and he's created a new people. He's created a new tribe, a unique group with an incredible mission in the world. But many times, rather than excelling together and building on each other's abilities, we often see infighting and distrust and distraction and rivalry. And over the next three weeks, we're going to do a brief overview in 1 Corinthians of chapters 12, chapters 13, and 14. And they're really key chapters that discuss the gifts of the Spirit and the result of the Spirit in our lives and the use of the gifts in the church. A man named R.T. Kendall writes this about the importance of these chapters. And he, he says, in 1974, my family and I visited Corey Ten Boom in Holland. Now, Corey Ten Boom was, was a, a wonderful woman of, of God who went through horrific suffering during World War II at the hand of, of the Nazis. And God worked in her life in incredible ways. She traveled the world speaking about forgiveness and, and, uh, and wholeness and healing. And then in the, in the 1970s, um, there was this incredible new work of the Holy Spirit in all kinds of different denominations. They called the charismatic renewal. And you saw it in the Catholic Church, you saw it in Methodist denominations, of course, Pentecostal denominations, where there was this new openness to the Holy Spirit working. And, and so he, R.T. Kendall goes to Holland and uh, he wanted to find out if she was a charismatic herself. And he says, he asked her, are you a, a charismatic? And without saying yes or no, she bluntly replied, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. But don't forget 1 Corinthians 13. The 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the, 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 the purpose and the intention of spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 talks about the use of those gifts in the church, how they're, how they're supposed to be, um, uh, be used and for the benefit of all people. And 1 Corinthians 13, of course, is the chapter on godly love. And it's that that holds those things together. So it's a shrewd way of saying we need both the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so chapter 12 deals with understanding spiritual gifts, and that's what we're going to look at today. And Paul really wants to get the church back on track and remind them of the greater goal. Paul's addressing specific issues of unity and maturity in the church at Corinth. And chapter 12 deals with spiritual gifts intended for unity and encouragement, but here in Corinth being used in a divisive way, in a competitive way. So we're going to kind of blitz through 1 Corinthians 12 today. 
And we're going to look at three, three chunks of verses in, in this chapter 12. First, verses 1 to 11. Verses 1 to 11 in chapter 12. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, miraculous powers. Prophecy. Distinguishing between spirits. Speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. <clears throat> you know, uh, sometimes spiritual gifts can, can seem kind of confusing and daunting. Um, almost like a human resource puzzle for the church. And we, we've got all these people with all different kinds of gifts, and, and what are we going to do with them all? Like, how do we find appropriate places for everybody? And a man named Ed McManus writes about human resources and how people get assigned to particular jobs. And he says, kind of jokingly, he says, leave a group of people in a conference room for four hours, and then you go back and you see what they're doing. If, if they don't look up when you enter the room, assign, assign them to the security department. If they're counting things, put them in finance. If they've taken the table apart, put them in engineering. If they're screaming and waving their arms, send them off to manufacturing. And if they've left early, put them in sales. <laughs> And, and, you know, so when we come to 1 Corinthians 12, we see the church here in Corinth, they're struggling with spiritual gifts and how to use them and how to organize them and how to work together. All right? They're struggling with things that we struggle with. So there's, it resonates with us as we, as we read this chapter. And the Greek word for gift, spiritual gifts, is charismata. All right? Charismata, which means gift of grace. The body of Christ is specifically gifted with the Holy Spirit and the ability to bless and encourage others. And he's given each one of you a, a what's called a gift of grace. He supernaturally enabled you to be a blessing to others. And Paul says first in verses 1 and 2 that spiritual gifts are to be understood. So these verses 1 through 11, verses 1 through 11 really talk about spiritual gifts explained. What are they really all about? What are they for? All right, in verses 1 to 2, says, you know, now about the gifts of the Spirit, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Don't be uninformed about the spiritual gifts. In other words, Paul says it's worth the efforts. It's worth the effort to find out what these are all about. There was a time, he says to those in, in, in Corinth, that you were led, astray, led astray, but it's different now. Now we get to operate under the authority of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's really a game changer. And, and he says we need to understand what these gifts are and what their purpose is. Gifts are to be understood. But secondly, spiritual gifts will always glorify Jesus. Spiritual gifts are always going to glorify Jesus. Verse 3, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Holy Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed. 
And, and this is really a good discernment reminder when we talk about spiritual gifts. How do we know if a spiritual gift is authentic? How do we know if it's real? A, a true spiritual gift is always going to glorify the name of Jesus. It, if it doesn't glorify God, if it doesn't glorify the name of Jesus, it's not a spiritual gift. They will always point to Jesus. There's no room for self-promotion or comparison. It's all about the glory of Christ. And, and Jesus even said this about the work of the Holy Spirit himself in John 15, 26. He said, when the advocate comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth goes out from the Father, and, and this Holy Spirit will testify about me. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is going to testify about Jesus. And so the purpose of spiritual gifts isn't to testify about ourselves or to point to ourselves. It's to point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's going to testify and bring glory to Jesus. And uh, in, in verses 4 to 6, spiritual gifts, we see that spiritual gifts are plenty and they're varied. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of different kinds of gifts and there's a lot of variety. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Different kinds of working. Uh, the Greek word there for working is energemata. Does that sound familiar? So anybody, energemata, it's the same word we derive energy or energize from. So it's pretty wild. Paul's, Paul's writing here that the Holy Spirit, there's different kinds of Holy Spirit energy that is given to every believer. And God's the originator of all of them. God's given you a gift and it may very well be different from your friends or different from your spouse or your siblings. And we have the opportunity to appreciate each one of them because we see in verse 7 that spiritual gifts are given to each each person, for the benefit of everyone. Verse 7 says, To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And the Greek word for common good or profit means to give an advantage or to unify. So God's given you, as the body of Christ, God's given you an incredible advantage. <laughs> In the world, as you go out to serve the Lord, God's given you an incredible advantage, and that advantage is what? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the energy of the Holy Spirit in your life. And there's a corporate communal nature to the purpose of spiritual gifts. They're not primarily for our own personal comfort and encouragement. They're intended to benefit everyone, the entire body of Christ. And so in that sense, we're really accountable to each other for our spiritual gifts. It's not something we own. They're freely given by God through the power of the Spirit, and their intention is that the entire church would be built up would be encouraged because of this. We gotta remember that our, the, the spiritual gift that God's given us, it's not a right that we have. It's a privilege. It's given freely. We don't own it. We don't deserve it. It's given freely by God to bless other people. And there's a lot of different kinds of gifts. And we see that in verses eight through 11. You know, it has this whole list of different gifts that we read. Faith and healing and miraculous powers and prophecy and discernment and speaking in different kinds of tongues. Now, in Scripture, there are four primary places where you can find a list of spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 6 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, what we're looking at today, Ephesians 4, 11, and 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. And you know what? None of these lists are identical. You can even see differences in the gifting lists in 1 Corinthians 12. 
Because Paul writes about gifts twice in that chapter. And those two lists, even within that chapter 12, are not the same as each other. And, and, and maybe the point of these verses is not to create a master list of the, this represents all, any spiritual gift that ever could exist, and there's no other spiritual gift than is in, uh, than is in these lists. Um, but maybe the purpose is it's a reminder that you know, God supernaturally endowed us with the energy of the Holy Spirit, and, and you have something unique that God's giving you to bless other people with. And so as we, as we go about following Jesus and, and, and operating in the Holy Spirit, we're naturally going to have opportunities to encourage each other and to bless each other. And Paul mentions that each of these gifts come from the same spirit, that phrase, same spirit. I mean, he says it like five times, and he's saying there's a unified purpose, there's a unified intention for each of these gifts. They're given by the will of God. They're not, not from us. They're not originating with us. In other words, spiritual gifts represent part of God's ongoing plan for the body of Christ. Now, there's a difference between uh, spiritual gifts and natural abilities. We know every person has natural abilities, right? But spiritual gifts are given to a believer by God to enable those natural abilities to be infused with the power of the Spirit in order to bring glory to God. And secondly, there's a difference between being spiritually gifted and being spiritually mature. You can have incredible gifts given to you by God, but still be spiritually immature. You know, when we look at scripture, we see that the criteria for being a good leader in the church actually has nothing to do with your spiritual gifting. It has everything to do with character. There's always going to be somebody more talented than you that can do something better than you can do. But serving in the kingdom of God is, is not dependent on your spiritual gift. It's dependent on your maturity in Christ. When you look at the criteria for leaders in the church, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, or in Titus 1, 5 to 9, there are a list of criteria for if you want to be a leader in the church, what do you need to be? And it says absolutely nothing about spiritual gifts. It's all about character. It's all about what kind of a person, how we're being refined by God. And that's a powerful truth. You know, we're only young once, but we can be immature forever. And the Bible shows us that it's not enough to be talented. Man, there's plenty of talent around. And there's plenty of talent around that's not making any eternal transformation. But true growth happens when we allow ourselves to be refined by God. David Guzik writes that God can grant anyone remarkable spiritual gifts in a moment, but character and maturity take time to build. So as we talk about gifts, our spiritual gifts, these lists that we've read, are they for today? Are spiritual gifts of God given to the church for right now? And there's a long tradition of debate within the church regarding whether all the gifts are still viable today. You know, some denominations believe that things, some things like miracles or supernatural healings or speaking in tongues were uniquely needed at the beginning of the church, you know, to kind of launch the church in power but then after the church was established that the church didn't need that anymore, and so they went away. It's called the cessationist view, okay? It's kind of a weird term, but it basically means cease, that, you know, some believe that the gifts cease, they stopped being necessary or effective after the church was started, and so we, that's why we don't, you know, see things like that anymore. 
And maybe, you know, so, so those who hold to the cessationist view believe that maybe after the apostles died, then those gifts died. Or maybe after the early church fathers, it was finished. And that God no longer reveals himself directly and supernaturally in the way that we see in Acts. Okay, but at Lighthouse, we believe that all the original gifts given by the Holy Spirit to the church are still available and are still necessary, even, for the witness of the church for today. And, and now we know, you know, there are wonderful believers on both sides of the issue, but it's important to know what kind of a church Lighthouse is, right? And, and for Lighthouse, we're a charismatic church, we're a Pentecostal church. We believe in the current work of the Holy Spirit within individual believers, but also within the corporate church. Um, now, just a little bit of a definition point. Charismatics, what's the difference between charismatics and Pentecostals? And, you know, there, there's kind of a lot of discussion around this, but in a general sense, charismatics believe that the gifts of the Spirit seen in the New Testament are still alive and active and intended for today's church. That, that it wasn't just a moment in time. It's still for today. That those gifts, the charismata, the gift of grace, all right, the energizing of the Holy Spirit, that's still for today. And that God still works through his people that way. Pentecostals specifically believe in a second infilling of the Holy Spirit in power to energize his people to serve him. You know, we know like when, when, when you came to the Lord and, and you surrendered your life to Christ, the Bible says that um, the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. So if you've submitted your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit is within you. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit testifies within you that you belong to Jesus. But then the Bible also shows that there are times when there was a second powerful infilling of the Holy Spirit uh, for important moments of ministry, um, important transformation and works that God was doing. And we see that even um, with the apostles after Jesus ascended to heaven. He said, go wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in power. Okay, so that's, that's kind of what Pentecostalism is about, at least part of it. Um, Mark 16, 17 to 8, Jesus said these signs will accompany those who believe. That there's going to be signs that accompany your belief in Jesus. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, uh, they will place, place their hands on sick people and they will get well. You know? So that, that God is still working, he's still living and active that way. Okay, so that was... Of the 1 Corinthians 12, that was verses 1 through 11, just kind of a general explanation about spiritual gifts, their intention, their purpose. Now, verses 12 through 20 talk about spiritual gifts working through unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Just as one body, just as a body, though one has many parts, though all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We were all given this one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they roll one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Uh, scripture uses 96 different images to describe the church. 
And what are some of them? You could probably think of some of them on the spot. People of God, Bride of Christ, Fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But the one used most often in the New Testament is Body of Christ, when it talks about the church. And it's amazing that in verse 12, Paul doesn't say the body is one, but has many parts, just like the church. He, he says the body is one, but has many parts, just like Jesus. And, and Paul alludes to the fact that Jesus is so intimately connected to the church that he's the head and that the church is the primary representation of Christ to the world. You know, 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Arnold Bittlinger wrote that in order, to, in order to accomplish his work on earth, Jesus had a body made of flesh and blood. In order to accomplish his work today, Jesus has a body that consists of living human beings. And in scripture, being the body of Christ is not something to attain, it's something to recognize that we already are created as the body of Christ. The question for us is, are we representing that well? So unity, in verse 12, shows unity does not mean uniformity. The fact that the body of Christ is unified together does not mean we're all going to be the same or would want to be the same. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. There's one body, but there's many members. And scripture assumes that each person, uh, that means you, have a unique gift that you bring to the table in the body of Christ. And, and they're different from each other. And in that difference, in that diversity, there remains unity. Um, there's no such thing as a cookie-cutter Christian. You each have your own story. You each have your own journey. The lessons that God has taught you. And it's different than everybody else, than anybody else in this room. And that's a beautiful thing. And you being part of the body of Christ is not a small thing. It's not an insignificant thing. Scripture shows us that you have an important role to play in the body of Christ. And when you're missing, when your gifts are missing, the body of Christ suffers because of that. Now, sometimes we try to minimize our differences, but, you know, we really should celebrate them. We need the various gifts of teachers and prophets and evangelists and helps and faith. And, and sometimes, yeah, we feel the tension of different personalities and gifts doing their best to work with each other, right? Just like the church in Corinth. They had their struggles too. They didn't have it all figured out. They argued and, and, they, and they got it wrong, but, but they still saw the Spirit of God move authentically in their midst. And, um, and that's not a bad thing to, to feel that dissonance sometimes because there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different people coming together. But God has a purpose for each person and, and a gift. And the fact that God brings different people together under his name to experience his grace and love and to share that with each other, it's really a picture of our future to come. It's a picture of what we have to look forward to. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Um, but also the Spirit unifies the body of Christ. It's the Spirit that unifies the body of Christ. It's not our gift. It's not our spiritual gift. Um, it's not our opinions. It's not our, our, our ideas. It's the Holy Spirit. We are all baptized by one Spirit. 
And as we follow Christ, we're to operate as, as a body operates. And now in Corinth, there, there were slaves and free. There were Jews and Gentiles. But there's one thing holding everything together, and that's the Holy Spirit. Caroline Lewis writes that one issue that comes to the surface is in working with these texts here in 1 Corinthians is, is how quickly after the extraordinary unity and community and fellowship that we experience during the season of Christ's birth, we succumb to the divisions to which we have been accustomed and with which more often than not we feel more comfortable. You know, a lot of times in the church, we're comfortable with division. We're comfortable with kind of staying where we've been and, 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 and doing what we've done and kind of keeping our differences and keeping our groups. But the Holy Spirit pushes against that. And so as we invite the Holy Spirit to come and work in our lives, God's going to, he's going to push against our natural tendency um, to, to be um, divided because that, that's a natural tendency in any church is, is to kind of go our separate ways and to be divided. I mean, just look at the history of the people of Israel, right? You want to look at divisions and, and issues and infighting. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just cover that. The Holy Spirit transforms that and brings the people of God together in a supernatural way. The Holy Spirit frees us from that comfortable division that really destroys the mission of the church. Every member is an important part of the body. Every member. Paul goes on to illustrate here in verses 14 to 20 that the church operates as a body. And Paul's coming up against the definition of, of how the Romans define unity. The Romans define unity as where the upper class would rule the lower class and Rome would be the hub of that. Rome would be the center of power and that would create sort of a superficial unity because who can fight against Rome, right? And, and Paul says, well, the body of Christ is actually supposed to operate differently than that. In the kingdom of God, each person is valued equally and there's no Roman-inspired hierarchy. And this would have been very controversial to read these words back then especially. In fact, there's an important connection between the kingdom of God and those who are viewed as weak or unimportant in the world. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul said, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise, not many influential, not many of noble birth. And Paul says, don't compare. We want to steer away from either extreme. We want to steer away from feeling inferior to others or feeling superior to others. Both attitudes damage the work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. And Paul says every member of the body is important. And that as believers, we, the, the idea that as believers we really don't need each other is, is a lie that weakens the testimony of the church and the effectiveness of the church. Paul said that the multiplicity of gifts is not just helpful, it's necessary. We need each other. Um, Simon Sinek writes that uh, a team is not a group of people who work together. A team is a group of people who trust each other. It's not enough to just come together and say, ah, I'm a, I follow Jesus, but everybody else, whatever. Uh, it, you know, we, we can say the same thing about the church. We're not just a group of people who work together. The body of Christ is meant to be a group of people who trust each other. We're going to find very few healthy Lone Ranger Christians out there trying to make it on their own. God created us to live in community. There are gifts that you have that I don't have or that your neighbor sitting next to you has that you don't have. 
and we need each other. Have you ever heard somebody say, I love God, but not the church? It's, it's really diametrically opposed to God's vision for the church, his creation of the church. Uh, let's just watch a short video together where Francis Chan talks a little bit about how we need each other as the body of Christ. Let's watch this. And this completely flies of those who say, I've got my relationship with God. I don't need the church. I don't need, you know, these little gatherings or, you know, I love Jesus. I just hate the church. We can't say that. You're going against everything Jesus asked you to do. God says, I designed you to be together. It's so beautiful when you work together and have one heart, one mind, one soul. And he says, and I'm going to do this. The beautiful thing, Jesus said 2,000 years ago, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. I will create this type of supernatural unity and gathering. And, and so it's not something that we have to force, like, okay, let's, let's do the fellowship thing. Let's make it happen. No, God says, I'm gonna make it happen. And the question is, is do you wanna be a part of it? Do you wanna have this sharing, this fellowship that God intended for his church? Or do you wanna continue living in isolation? God's invitation to you is to come on this mission that is the church, and you have something to offer. All right, so the last little grouping of verses in chapter 12 is verses 21 to 31 that talks about spiritual gifts reveal interdependency, um, where it talks about the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. But those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. The parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And God has put the body together, and there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. But we're the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it, and God is placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, and, and so on, lists, lists different various gifts there. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way, Paul writes. And so verses 21 to 23, we see that there's no spiritual hierarchy of gifts. You know, a lot of times we can hold up certain gifts and think one is more important than another. Uh, but it really doesn't seem to be consistent with God's character or, or how he works. And repeatedly we see scripture reorder our view on what or who is important. You know, we see Jesus inviting the little children to come to him where, where others would have just brushed them away. We see um, Jesus teaching about the poor woman who gave a small amount. Um, who was rewarded, his focus on the poor, on the sick, on the outcast of society, his challenge to us on the Sermon on the Mount that the, it would be the meek uh, that would inherit the earth. And all these things challenge us to rethink how we value other people. And that phrase, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, doesn't necessarily mean that apostles are more important it can refer to the, the order in which the gifts are often manifested. Like when, the, when a church is established, a lot of times the apostle, an apostleship gift is needed first to, to kind of to get things established. But, but, but once the church is established, then other gifts come in. Prophets and teachers come to challenge and, and mature the body. And sometimes what appears as the most inconsequential member is actually vitally important. But we also see that recognition and care of each other brings unity. 
When we recognize each other and we care for each other, that brings unity to the body of Christ. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. That phrase, God has put the body together, it means mixing different things together for a purpose. It it can even mean mixing different colors together. Isn't that beautiful? Where God's creating something new. And as God puts us together, we're called to care for one another. But we also see that the body rejoices and suffers together. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Our testimony for Christ will either be effective or it will be compromised based on how we go through suffering together. When we encounter difficulty, do we suffer well together? And can we rejoice together? David Pryor writes that in the West, we've become so accustomed to finding escape routes from pain of all kinds that we can learn deep lessons from our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for whom suffering is normal and inevitable. And so the body rejoices together and the body suffers together. And that's part of the gift we can share together. And it brings unity to the body of Christ. And so Paul ends chapter 12 by saying, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. After speaking about all these incredible spiritual gifts, he says, I'm going to show you an excellent way. And we're going to look at that next week in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, So in closing, 1 Corinthians 12, we've seen spiritual gifts explained in verses 1 through 11 that spiritual gifts are to be understood. They're worth comprehending. They're worth understanding. Spiritual gifts will always glorify Jesus. If if, if something doesn't glorify Jesus, it's not a spiritual gift. And spiritual gifts are are plenty. There's a lot of them. There's a diverse group of giftings. And spiritual gifts are given to each person but the intention is for the benefit of the whole group. God has given you a specific gifting or maybe multiple giftings and it's for the benefit of everyone. And then verses 12 to 20, spiritual gifts work through unity and diversity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we're all the same. It means we have this multiplicity of gifts that God brings together and supernaturally unifies us through the power of his spirit. And every member in the body is important. That means you. You are an important part of the body of Christ. And then verses 21 to 31, spiritual gifts reveal interdependency. There's no hierarchy of spiritual gifts. There's no one better than the other. But recognition and care of each other brings unity, and we rejoice and suffer together. So what does this all mean for you and me? Um, Jack Hayford writes that God's put a gift in you to help you understand who you are. You're going to find yourself in the gift that stirs you up, that captures your attention, and to which you inherently respond. Understanding how God created you is a fundamental part of coming to understand yourself. And we recognize that the ultimate goal is not the spiritual gift. You know, what we truly seek is, is not a gift. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus. So we don't glorify spiritual gifts. Rather, the gifts point us to Jesus. They're a way that we can exchange the love and the grace of God with each other and with the world around us. And there's a very practical living and out sort of attitude when it comes to spiritual gifts. I just wanted to read this real short story about a lady named Peggy and and her kind of discovery of spiritual gifts. And she said, she writes, I've been painting for about a year. That's correct. I never picked up a paintbrush in my life until a year ago. At that point, I found a gift that I was born with that I never knew was there. Now, about four years prior to that, I had discovered that I could write. 
another gift. And there were a lot of circumstances that led to my writing. Two things in particular. First, long walks with a dear friend who constantly encouraged me to write and tell my story. She knew so much of my background and felt I had a unique story to share. Secondly, the death of my mother. This was a dark time in my life and writing helped me to process my sorrow. Well, one day I painted a journal with an angel on the cover. One of my customers wanted to give it to a dear family member who was dying. I painted it but felt odd about charging her for her act of kindness. I mailed it off to her and told her, this one's on me. Another customer had seen the photo of it on my website and she asked if I would paint one for her as well. I was happy to do so. I continued to paint these and started sending them to people I knew who were dealing with life-threatening illnesses or death of a loved one. Eventually, I started giving them out in person. And this was my aha moment. I felt now that my gift had a purpose. Okay, God, now I see. Who knew you had your eye on social media? You are an amazing God. Through these angel journals, I began creating the Angel Joy Project was born, named after my angel journals and my mom, Joy. It fit the name, the meaning behind the name, and a project founded to bring peace, love, and hope to those suffering from the devastating effects of life-threatening diseases and death. I visit people in the hospital. I bring them a journal. I see them at church or at their homes and bring them one. I encourage them to jot down their prayers or thoughts or simply their daily schedule. My dream is to eventually turn this small project into a foundation. We'll see. Who knows what God has in store for me? For now, I'm comforted with the fact that I'm serving our God and our community through the gifts he so graciously blessed me with. As the worship team uh, comes up this morning, you know, we began today with, with the, the quote, the idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could become something more, see if they could work together when we needed them to, to fight the battles that we never could. And the question for us is, will we become more than the sum of our parts? Are we going to band together under the victory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit moving forward together on this incredible mission of the body of Christ in the world? And Jesus has given you something called a spiritual gift. And Paul says, don't be unaware. <laughs> don't be unaware of them. And so I want to give you a tool to begin to process what your gifts are and, and how you can use them. And, and maybe you've done something like this before. Maybe you've never done something like this. Um, and maybe this will be a reminder. Um, I want you to go to this website uh, on, uh, on the screen there. It's called freeshapetest.com. Um, you can write it down or, or bookmark it in your browser. Uh, you can fill out a free gift assessment. Now, SHAPE stands for Spiritual Gifts, Heart, Abilities, Personality, and Experiences. And, and this, is, this assessment, it's not the final word or the definition of who you are as a person. It's just a starting point to, to begin to, 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 to explore these areas and see how it resonates with you. Another way to discover your gifts is to begin to serve other people in different capacities, here at church or, or in the community. And you really learn by doing. Uh, you learn what God's gifted you with and you learn what God has not gifted you with <laughs> by doing. And see what's a good fit by getting involved here at the church or in different ministries. Um, God's equipped us uh, with spiritual gifts, with his gifts of grace, and he's energized us with the Holy Spirit. He's sending us on a mission. And will we do that together? Will we come together under the power of his spirit? Let's pray this morning. Yeah.